you're sitting at the keyboard, ready to write your magnum opus. All is quiet, just the calm of the blank page in front of you. Your computer waits unobtrusively, like a sort of electronic Jeeves, ready to leap into action should you command something. But underneath that impassive exterior lies a maelstrom of activity. Hidden from view, an intricate command and control structure, a sort of electronic court of Versailles scurrying around, making sure the computer can do its business and your, you, the user, are treated like Louis XIV. All that hassle and bustle, the stuff that makes your computer work smoothly, that's what we call an operating system. If you prefer something a bit more prosaic, then I refer you to that radical magazine, The Beano, uh, in which the human brain is portrayed as having an interior full of uh, little <coughs> workers beavering away and solving various cognitive problems. They're called the numbskulls. And uh, it's quite a good analogy, I think, of the, uh, of the operating system as we know it today. Of course, um, early computers didn't have operating systems at all. And uh, this picture, which shows uh, Grace Hopper, one of the most famous programmers of all time, uh, sitting at the terminal of UNIVAC, uh, which was an early uh, early computer system. I've talked about it in previous lectures, actually. And um, what this illustrates very nicely is what is now known as the open shop system. So the idea, really, is that the computer designer, the programmer and the user in those days were pretty much the same person. And programming computers sort of involved sitting in front of one of these complicated consoles and flicking switches. Um, it, there wasn't a high-level programming language and there wasn't, a, uh, there wasn't anything to make your job easy. You flick these switches and you ran the thing and if, it, uh, if, it, if the computer stayed up, because they weren't the most reliable things, you got an answer out at the end of it. Uh, you, the user, had sole use of the machine. And... Uh, this continued quite a way, actually, into the early life of computers. Uh, there's a paper by George Rickman um, talks about the IBM 701, which was an early uh, computer that he, they'd had installed commercially uh, where he worked. And um, what they discovered, that these computer thingies were really popular with a whole range of people. So there was a lot of people queuing up to use the system, well, literally queuing up, as it turned out. So the way they managed this demand was they split uh, the open shop into 15-minute slots. Uh, so you, the programmer, had 15 minutes to, to go on the computer. And he sat there and made some notes on how people used the machine and discovered, somewhat to his horror, that roughly 10 minutes of the 15 minutes was spent faffing around setting up the tapes and dealing with the output. So of your 15 minutes, you only got five minutes of runtime. Uh, which was far from ideal, particularly as the IBM 
701 had a mean time between failures of three and a half hours. So I assume it was highly likely that you would get into the open shop and discover that it wasn't open at all. Um, so that was sort of pre-operating systems history. And um, the number of operating systems that could have gone on this timeline is wildly and crazily uh, long. So I've only given you a flavour of, um, of what you've got. I'll, um, I'll give you a link later to a, a full list of operating systems and their histories. But if we sort of slide along this um, timeline, over on the left-hand side, Basically, we've got systems which are trying to make available a single very expensive resource, the computer, to as many people as possible. So that's the demand over there on the left. It's a commercial demand, really. You've got a big, expensive capital asset, and you want to work it as much as possible. And then as we slide over to the right, to the present day, uh, machines cost nothing. You know, the, the cost of the central processing unit, the CPU, is negligible, pence. So what we're really trying to do here, apart from some rather modern issues to do with security and um, reliability and so on, uh, what we're probably trying to do is more the other way round. We're trying to give a single user access to as many machines as possible so that we can get their work done as quickly as possible. So it's a, quite an interesting sort of swing across the... Uh, from uh, uh, many users, one machine, to uh, one user, multiple machines. Although in practice, of course, it is multiple users and multiple machines. Now, trying to put some sort of structure around operating systems history is not so easy because there have been a number of false starts and uh, operating systems have come and, come and gone. As it happens, I'll show later, uh, quite a few have gone, but uh, there have been a few big winners in the world of operating systems. In, either, in order to try and structure those ideas, I've just nicked a, uh, a table from one of the operating systems uh, experts, well, former expert, um, Pear Brinch Hansen, and he wrote this book, sort of uh, classic operating systems, which is a sort of collection of best papers in operating systems. Great read if you fancy it. It's sort of um, it's the sort of computer scientist version of um, Pride and Prejudice or Barsetshire Chronicles, perhaps. And um, what he's trying to do here is pick out some phases in operating systems and some ideas that are of interest. So. This table actually is pretty much chronological. So we start at the 1950s with the idea of this open shop. And then in the 60s, uh, in comes this idea of closed shop processing. And a closed shop means uh, the machine room isn't open to the likes of you and me. There's only a few high priests who are allowed into the machine room. And we would write our programs on a remote terminal, a dumb terminal. We might punch some tape or punch some cards, they would then be stacked up in a batch and run through in a batch. And so that's the idea of tape batching. Even when you got this batch of jobs to do, you've still got this interesting problem, which I'll come on to in a moment, which is, which job should you run first then? Hmm. Should you run the longest job first or the shortest job first? Hmm, interesting question, isn't it? And it needs, needs a bit of thinking about it. It's not quite so obvious. 
So that takes us through to the sort of early 60s. And then in, in the 1960s, there was a bit of a sort of buzz. Um, and we have moved to what you might think of as a sort of modern view of an operating system, which uh, Per Brinchanson has called multi-programming here. But it's, um, the idea here is that we're trying to give um, an impression of being able to run uh, multiple jobs. So we're having a computer that can do more than one thing at once, maybe handle more than one person at once, which takes us through to time sharing. That's the 1970s, really. And then he's picked out uh, concurrent programming. That was a big issue uh, when I was a kid in the 80s. Um, and probably a lot of it was quite rarefied and didn't happen, but some of it has been picked up, and I'll talk a little bit about that later when I talk about the cloud. Uh, I'm not going to say so much about personal computing um, in this lecture. Uh, I've completely not talked about the graphical user interface, partly because there are other lectures talking about GUIs, um, partly because well, time is always the enemy in a Gresham lecture, so I'm just going to park gra graphical user interfaces. Um, and then distributed systems. And what's not on here, of course, because this is quite an old table, is, is the cloud and... Uh, all of that brings, so we ought to talk about that. So there's a little plan. Um, but let's sort of spool back, and let's spool back to the sort of initial problem that sparked this, the multi-programming initiative. And the initial problem that caused quite a lot of hassle for people is quite a simple one to describe, and it's the, it's the peripherals. And for a lot of computers, um, a lot of the problems don't come from the computing, they come from the I.O., getting the input and the output right. And the usual problem is that the I.O. is far too slow. So the computer is sort of sitting there, you know, looking at its watch, waiting for things to happen. Now, for those of you who are... Oh, I don't know how old you, should, you have to be to know this, but I thought, just as a blast from the past, I thought I'd show you, not a very old peripheral, but I'll show you one from... Uh, the late 1970s, um, just looking at the physical audience. Yes, quite a few people in the physical audience who might recognise this. Online audience, uh, this is what a printer used to look like. Okay, um, this is a, a printer from 1978, and somebody's having a go at uh, uh, rejuvenating it in this video. I'll just play it for you. Ah, better. Moving like crazy on the table, but it works. Look at that. Yes, a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? We used to have these things on our desks. Um, it, they were unbelievably noisy, and um, they had this uh, absolutely rubbish print head. And this is quite a late one, you know, if you think about early peripherals. The problem was they're slow and they didn't have much memory in them. So the computer would send some small amount of information to the printer and then the printer would slowly print everything out and um, not, you know, without, uh, you know, without the developments I'm talking about, there was nothing to do. So the the computer would essentially sit there running no ops 
through it, uh, no operation. So it would just sit there. And it was pretty obvious early on that this was very inefficient. So a solution sort of presented itself quite early on. And the solution was to have the computer do something else when it wasn't, uh, when it was in a wait state waiting for the I.O. And um, this is an important concept in operating systems and it leads on to all sorts of other things. And uh, the, the idea that was uh, generated is called a context switch. So you can think of this a bit like this. On the top line, let's imagine this is your user program running here. I've called it process one. And then we're going to get a signal and the signal is usually called an interrupt. An interrupt is a signal to the computer to interrupt what you're doing. And then we're going to try and switch across to process two. And as we do that, we're going to save the state of process one into a program control block. Then we're going to load the state that is appropriate for process two. That's called a program control block. We're going to switch across. And then we'll switch back again when we're finished. So the program control block varies a lot from operating, well, it doesn't vary a lot, it varies from operating system to operating system. There are some design decisions about what you need to save, but in essence, what you normally save is uh, where am I in the program that's running and the state of the uh, uh, central processing unit as you were, as you have an interrupt. So that would be all of the registers, all of the local memory and so on. And then in comes the switch back. So all very simple. This time here down the bottom, which I've labeled delta T, is often called the process switch latency. And you obviously want that to be as fast as possible. So you try and design your computer so that you can save this PCB as quickly as possible. So there's lots of sort of, um, what's the word, sort of uh, maneuvering by hardware uh, designers to make sure that this switch uh, happens as as, uh, as quickly as it can be, and indeed software engineers. And one of the manoeuvring is to try and minimise the amount of stuff that we have to save in the PCB. So we could perhaps save a little bit less, in which case, instead of a process, what we might refer to as a heavyweight process, which we're going to have to save a big context, we could use a lightweight process, often called a thread, which is often a sub-process. And... We don't have to save quite as much if we're doing this. But this operation bonk, 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 is fundamental to the way your computer is working. Well, there's probably one in every pocket in this uh, lecture room at the moment, if not two. And that's, that's your mobile phone. It's fundamental to the way the operating system works. So now let me just talk you through how it works. So let's, let's try and use an analogy. Um, Right, okay, it's afternoon and uh, we're doing some knitting. Okay, so I've got my knitting pattern out here and I don't know if you're experts on knitting, I'm not, but I presume you can read the pattern and know where you've got to. So that, that's the equivalent of my program counter. So I'm doing knit, 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 knit and I mark where that uh, I've got to on the knitting pattern and I'm going to stop now because I need to make uh, supper. 
which is, um, I don't know, shepherd's pie in our house. So what I'm going to do, pick up my knitting, I'll put it over here on this pile over here, and that's all the instructions. Now get the ingredients for the shepherd's pie. Chop, 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 chop. Doing that, that's me on process two, right? Wah, wah, baby cries, right? High priority interrupt, that is. The baby has to be fed. So we pick up all the shepherd's pie ingredients, stack them up on top of the knitting over here, right? That's called the stack over here in computer language. And comes the baby, blah, feed the baby, blah, 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 right? Baby's finished, put the baby back, get back this, pop the stack, as we would say, finish this. Uh, oh, I've got a bit of time spare, do some knitting, pull up the knitting, put this back, right? So we've got this memory area over here, which is getting longer and shorter. That's the side table, in, and that's called the stack and the computer is popping the stack as it does these context switches. All happy with that? Now, I neatly segued there from a hardware-driven interrupt, which is something like a hard disk saying, I need to be serviced. Uh, that's what happens there is the printer or whatever it is. Probably not a printer now, but let's pick a hard disk. says, I must have your attention. That's a high-priority input, interrupt. It goes to the interrupt processor, which says, hmm, is your interrupt important enough to interrupt this high-priority task that I'm doing at the moment? Mm, yes, it is. Your high-priority, I'll deal with you. Um, or it says, mm, yes, you can wait. Right? It's a bit like a sort of, um, a sort of someone in a school, you know, uh, the guardian to the head teacher's office. So it says, mm, yes, yes, fire, uh, school's burning down. Yeah, OK, that sounds important enough. Um, yeah, uh, could I have uh, tomorrow's detention? I think that can wait until we've dealt with the fire, with the school burning down, you know. So the, the interrupt processor does all of that and gets these priorities right. You can use the same idea to drive uh, switches from the operating system if you wish. So what most operating systems would do is split that timeline into chunks and at each one of those chunks something called a scheduler will run, I'll talk a little bit about that later, decide what the priority tasks are at the moment, generate a software interrupt, switch everything around, and thus each one of the users, shown here, are getting this rather convincing impression that the computer is servicing their every little need at, uh, in a continuous fashion. But it isn't. Right? The computer is a master juggler. Unlike humans, you know, humans are terrible at context switching. Whatever people tell you, they're not good at it at all. But computers are absolute geniuses at it, and the reason is they store everything in the stack. We, we don't have a human equivalent of the stack. We don't know what's in our brain, so we can't write it down. This diagram also shows another feature that is not quite so evident from what, I'm, what I've been saying so far, and it's not essential to have this, but most modern computers would have this which is there's a clear distinction in a modern uh, piece of hardware, it usually starts at the hardware level, between what we would call the, op the instructions that can be accessed by users and the instructions that are only for uh, the part of the operating system that does the work. Okay, and they're called protected instructions. They're not absolutely essential. Um, I remember um, some sadistic professor of mine setting a, uh, a homework assignment, which was to write a multi-user operating system for a processor called the Z80. I mean, this was incredibly cruel because the Z80 didn't have any protective mode instructions and was frankly 
it wasn't even powerful enough to run a digital watch, let alone anything else. So you, you can do it, but you've got to have quite a lot of cooperation with the users. And the, the reason is, of course, you don't want a malign agent up here being able to affect what's happening to this user over here. So the only way you can do that is to stop these user processes accessing various bits of the hardware, and you certainly want to stop them uh, task-switching stuff that they don't own. So alongside, I was going to say every operating system, I hate using the word every, because there's always somebody online who says, oh, no, RTOS doesn't do this, but I suspect every operating system has the uh, idea of uh, privilege. So there are super users and users who have certain privileges. So there's a hierarchy of what people can do. Uh, if you don't have that hierarchy, it's a free-for-all and you all have to cooperate. And as we know, uh, computer scientists are, uh, find cooperation somewhat difficult, uh, particularly when a little bit of miscooperation can give you more access to the valuable CPU time, uh, which used to be, when I was a graduate student, that was a favourite trick of ours, which was to log in and adjust the scheduling parameters on our workstations so that our jobs ran 100% uh, of the time over the, uh, over the weekend. It was a brilliant, a brilliant game, um, and uh, it probably gave me innumerable results in my PhD that I didn't have a right to have almost certainly at the expense of the research group who owned the computers, but hey, there you go, public confession time. Um, now, there's one other feature that was developed in this sort of rather febrile period when we're talking about multi-programming, and I've put this next to context switching, but it's not the same. are often confused in people's minds. So context switching is the ability to run multiple tasks at once. Now I'm going to talk about virtual memory, and virtual memory is um, it's a portmanteau term and could refer to quite a few uh, things. Uh, and it's not very precisely defined as a lot of operating systems are not precisely defined. But I'll, I'll show you some of the concepts that sit within the idea of virtual memory. So if we're going to allow users to think that they have exclusive access to the computer, um, it's an illusion that we're going to create with our operating system, then we presumably have to give them a programmer's model of memory. So we've already acknowledged that parts of the memory are going to have the operating system in and parts of them are going to have bits of other users' code and so on. But we don't want programmers... I don't want... I, me, I don't want to know what you've put in the, operating, in the computer. I just want to get on with my life. So the programmer's model is shown here on the left, which is just a sort of linear block of memory. And then... Over on the computer side, we've got a block reserved for the operating system. We've got user one jammed in here. We've got user two uh, maybe jammed in here. And then we've got some spare memory over here. But this isn't the full story because most computers will have some way of managing fast memory different from slow memory. And in the old days, slow memory was a disk, a physical disk. You know, there was a, I don't know if you remember those days, but there used to be a large lump of spinning metal in your, in your laptop or even on your mainframe, great big thing. And uh, it could hold a lot of data, by which I mean in the early days, kilobytes. Um, 
but it was very slow. So the trick was to persuade the uh, physical computer to use uh, some of that memory as virtual memory. And if I just add these diagrams here. So the way you, this is usually done is to split your memory into blocks. These are usually called pages. Some people call them segments, but let's stick with pages here. I've labelled them A, B, C, D, E, F. Obviously, the, the page size has to be chosen carefully to fit with the parameters of your system, and that's what systems engineers do. They fiddle around with the page size, get it wrong, and you've got some performance disaster on your hand, I should uh, add. And then through this thing here, which is usually called a page table, we're going to map these out to this backing store out here. So in this case, we just have two physical pages in our quick memory, and the rest are out on disk. So if somebody asks, they say, well, I want page C, please, what happens is a page fault is generated here, and the paging system goes, ah, quick, 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 and you want page C. Uh, do we have it? Do we have it? No. Right. Get it in from disk. Get it in from disk. It's like one of those sort of uh, French farces, you know, where something horrible is happening behind the doors and somebody sort of says, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. What's actually happening is the system is just uh, saying, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. Go off and do something else. Yeah, interrupt. Uh, computer goes and does something else. Are you ready yet? Yes, I'm ready now. I've got it in memory. Ah, oh, right. Here it is. The uh, process of shuffling these to and fro here is usually mediated through something called a cache. So if you hear a, uh, the use of the word cache, that is a, another bit of memory to make the access of these uh, lumps of disk and pages uh, faster still. Right. Uh, nowadays, we've got a lot of RAM, and so um, that's, the, that's the quick memory. So this paging store, backing store malarkey isn't used anywhere near as extensively as it used to be. Um, but, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, a kid, I mean, when I was an undergraduate, we were programming on um, computers made by the Digital Equipment Corporation, who made a wonderful range of computers. The first group were called the PDP-11, which was very extensively used in research labs. And then they moved to a system called the VAX, which ran an operating system called the VMS, Virtual Memory System. You know, it was a big selling point then for DEC, the, the VMS. And because they were expensive, they were notorious for being supplied with not enough um, fast store. So you were always paging stuff in and out of uh, memory, and that takes time. You can get to a point where the amount of time you spend shuffling pages in and out, in off disk, actually exceed the amount of time you spend doing anything else, and that's called thrashing. And this parody of do, do you remember? Do you recall this poem? It was by Lewis Carroll, uh, the Duchess. She was sort of dandling her baby and uh, had this peculiar poem, which probably you wouldn't be allowed to get away with now, called Speak Roughly to Your Little Boy and Beat Him When, when, he, when he Displeases, I think. Um, so this poem was uh, pinned on every operating system, op operator's door um, about the nightmare of uh, vax paging. Right, so now we've sort of scooted up to what is basically the modern operating system. We've got something there that is handling some of the hardware issues and it's 
you know, looking like, uh, a bit like the sort of operating systems that people are familiar with. So now would be a good time to look a little bit more detail at an operating system. And um, you might say, well, how do you choose what operating system to talk about? And that's actually quite easy because um, nowadays, as we'll see later, there are really only two operating systems of any uh, significance. And um, I've picked one that is a sort of always a hero of um, academics because it's been widely used in... Uh, it's widely used in universities, that's for sure, and is now widely used in, in a wide range of places. And that's Unix. So rather than explain um, Unix, I will uh, play a little video of um, the two inventors of Unix, Dennis Ritchie and uh, Ken Thompson, who were both based at uh, Bell Labs, AT&T Bell Labs, for those of you who've been following the series, you will notice that an awful lot of things were developed at Bell Labs. And if you've got a moment, do visit AT&T Bell Labs to have a look at their history timeline. It is a very surprising uh, record of uh, achievement. Let's have a look at what they say. Back in 1969, a couple of computer scientists here at Bell Labs started to develop some programs they needed for their own use. What Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie started developing then has evolved into the Unix operating system, which by now is widely used around the world. We were trying to make computing as simple as possible. In the late 1960s, Dennis Ritchie and I realized that the then current operating systems were much too complex. We attempted to reverse this trend by building a small, simple operating system on a mini computer. Well, what we wanted to preserve was not just a good programming environment in which to do programming, but a system around which a community could form, fellowship. We knew from experience that the essence of communal computing as supplied by remote access time-sharing systems is not just to type programs into a terminal instead of a key punch, but to encourage close communication. The Unix system started out as a two-man effort, and by now it's used all over Bell Labs. We have close to 20,000 computer terminals in this company, roughly one per employee, and most of them are used for communicating with Unix systems. One of the main reasons that the Unix system is popular around here is because it provides graceful facilities for decomposing complex computing tasks into simple subtasks. The Unix operating system is basically made up of three parts. The kernel, or operating system proper, is the part that manages the control of the machine and supervises scheduling of the various user programs. The shell, or which is the name we give to the command interpreter, looks after the communication between the user and the system itself. And the third part, which is actually the largest, is the various utility programs, which perform specific tasks like editing a file, or sorting a bunch of numbers, or uh, making a plot. Uh, in other words, all the other programs that are not provided directly as part of the operating system kernel. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, it's good to hear that those guys talk. They're incredibly important innovators in our, in our, in the world of computer science. Also, good to hear the word fellowship. You don't hear that word said very often in a 
operating systems lecture, um, apart from, of course, the Worshipful Company of Information Technologists who sponsor these lectures and who believe in, amongst other things, fellowship. So shout out to them. Um, you also heard the word kernel there, a kernel as in uh, inner part of a nut. And the analogy that they were using there was that there was this sort of inner part of the operating system that does the work, and then there's the shell which you interact with. And in fact, the first Unix shell was imaginatively called SHA, S-H, stands for shell. Um, and then there's lots of utilities which sit on the outside of that. And that was... In, it was indeed in some contrast to operating systems that preceded it, which had become very bulky. Uh, nowadays, we don't normally draw it as a series of concentric circles. You'd normally draw an operating system with the hardware down at the bottom, and then the kernel sits here. This is the main part of the operating system up here. And then these are processes. They might be system processes or they might be user processes. The difference between a system process and the user process is the amount of privilege it has when it's, when it's running. Now, this diagram looks simple, but it introduces a number of sort of common concepts that we're used to in operating systems. So the first one, I suppose, is that the, at the top of this, we have standard interfaces. And this is really a programmer's uh, convenience. It's a tremendous hassle writing programs at the best of times. And if you have to rewrite them every time a user has a slightly different bit of hardware, it's a nightmare. And this is what used to happen. You know, so you thought, well, I've got a PDP 11, 40. Oh, I've written my program. And then your friend would say, can I have a copy of your program? And you'd say, yeah, yeah here you go. And you say, uh, I've got a different keyboard. And you go, oh, sorry, it won't work then. That doesn't happen now. And the reason is because we have defined interfaces between things. It's a, it's a straight copy from electrical engineering where you have standard parts and these standard, or mechanical engineering now, where these standard parts fit together. So that's an important part, important function of an operating system, which is to provide a coherent programmer's interface between you, the user, and hardware that could be way, way different, you know, really surprisingly different. The other feature here is that the kernel is split into blocks and there may be some difference between operating systems in these blocks but pretty much you know you would expect if I put the diagram of windows up here you know you would have seen pretty similar blocks. Um, so it's a bit like um, a mechanic opening the sort of the hood or the bonnet of a car. Uh, they can spot although the the uh, air conditioning compressor looks different on a Tesla uh, from a VW Passat. It's fairly simple to identify it by its function and it has similar inputs and outputs and does sim similar things. So that's, that's an important concept of uh, an operating system that um, common <coughs> blocks are labelled in a common way which makes systems design and systems tweaking a lot easier. And um, we can see this just by looking, I'm sorry about the complexity of this slide, but it does come straight from um, uh, GitHub. These are, tool these are a list of tools for interacting with various bits of the Linux operating system. It's a bit of an open question as to whether Linux is Unix or not Unix. Uh, most people on the family tree of operating systems say, no, Linux is not, a, uh, not the same as Unix. 
And that's because uh, Linus Torvalds, when he was writing Linux, looked at the concepts that were present in Unix and decided to rewrite them all from scratch. Same command names, same structure as Unix, but uh, completely fresh and different code under the hood. So I'm not quite sure what you would call it, sort of Unix clone, I suppose. Uh, the reason for that was partly because I think Torvalds likes writing code and if you can write operating systems, then you, you've probably reached the sort of, um, it's, the, it's the Wimbledon of, of, of programming or Flushing Meadow of programming. It's the ultimate achievement doing so. But partly because um, AT&T, although it had given away copies of Unix for free to universities, it got mired into um, all sorts of intellectual property disputes. And then there was another version that Berkeley had produced called BSD, and some people had used that, and then Sun had come along and done their own version. It was getting all very confused. So he said, stuff that. I'm going to do uh, my own version of Unix, which I'm going to call Linux. That was an aside. The important thing is to look at some of these blocks here. And we can see that these would be fairly standard. Again, we've got hardware-y bits down the bottom. So these are called device drivers. These are the interfaces with bits of hardware. We've got stuff over here to do with file systems, virtual file system, so on. Um, we've got stuff here to do with low-level and medium-level communication. That's uh, networking, uh, the internet protocol, and then the uh, slightly higher uh, uh, TCP. These are things to do with the virtual memory, the scheduler, this is something to do with how the CPUs are being used. And then up here, we've got stuff to do with users. So an important feature of operating systems is the provision of these things called libraries. And uh, the, there's a bit of a debate no, I think it's, it's now settled, but there, there was a bit of a debate running pretty much when Torvalds wrote Linux, actually, as to how you would best configure uh, an operating system. So, so far, I've been talking about what are called monolithic operating systems, where all of these things here in pink are part of the protected mode and run in super user mode. So... In a way, you can think of it as a sort of a cabal of de developers write all of this. They don't need to check whether the file server and the device driver are compatible with each other because they go together. They are always locked together. So you can do quite fast inter-process communication, but it's a big old block of stuff to write. So there's a big sort of, there was a big debate as, well, do we actually need all of this stuff running in protective protected mode, um, hence microkernel. And the idea behind the microkernel is the principle of least privilege, really, which is you should not... What, what is the... Uh, how little stuff can I get away with running in protected mode or as a super user? And um, it's really a matter of philosophy of this. And like a lot of operating systems wars, um, it doesn't really have a right or a wrong answer. Um, I think there is a slight interest. One of the things that intrigues me about microkernels isn't whether one is better than the other to write or any of those things. But the microkernel does hold out one interesting potential, 
which is if you could get it small enough, then you might be able to prove that it works. People are smiling when I say that. It seems a bit of a weird thing. Um, one of the problems with modern computer systems, and I've alluded to this in other lectures, is how do you know that the thing you've got in front of, in front of you is doing what it says? And it's a sort of existence proof, really. And that becomes particularly important when you've got embedded systems. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say we, we bought a router for 5G telephony in this country, United Kingdom. Well, there's three or four people who could supply that router. Um, it's a bit of a dumb terminal. What gives it life is the algorithm that gets downloaded into the router and does its business. And that algorithm gets updated. So then, the router can go from completely functioning to not functioning at all. Just like that. So if the person supplying the router was from a country that wasn't friendly towards the United Kingdom, then one press of a button and all your cellular telephony stops working. That's softwareization. You know, that can happen with softwareization. So, and it's a common problem in the IT industry. We are never quite sure how the thing we've got in front of us really works. There's, you know, maybe only one person in the world who knows how it works. Right, so microkernel, if we could get it small enough, we might be able to do a formal proof that it is doing what it says it can do. And indeed, that's been done. Uh, there's, a, there's a microkernel system called L4, and um, there's a version of L4, I think, I think it's either SEL4 or CEL4, which is a high assurance version of L4 that has been formally verified. I think that's the first time ever. And so that's quite a sort of encouraging uh, thought that there is an operating system out there that we can be mathematically confident is doing what it is meant to do. doesn't say anything about the rest of the stuff, of course. So it doesn't, doesn't get you out of the woods, but it's a step in the right direction towards high assurance computing. Now, I've alluded to this standardization uh, several times. And this... Uh, block diagram is another version of uh, Linux. It's one that you're probably quite familiar with. It's called Android. So if you have an Android phone, it's actually a Linux uh, kernel in there, so it's, which is a version of Unix. So if you, were thinking, if you were sitting here thinking, well, I've never heard of Unix, it sounds very rarefied, you've probably heard of Android and you've probably been using it every day. Android is a rather interesting uh, case, and it, I picked it because it illustrates um, an interesting observation about the way code is put together, which is a function of the way operating systems work. So I remember the first program I worked for, wrote for a big uh, Windows operating system. It was for a Sun uh, workstation, wonderful computers. And the, the first program you always write is called Hello World. And Hello World only does one thing. It prints Hello World on the output. But because it's a Windows program, it has to add various code. And that code comes from libraries. So uh, my one-line program, Hello World, or a couple of lines, by the time I'd finished compiling it, I had added in 130,000 lines of code. So that extra, that was the stuff to do the windowing system. So the library can be very significant. And you can see the problem already, can't you? Which is, 
if you add every bit of the library to your code as you compile it, as you build it, you're going to end up with great, big, bulky, bloaty bits of code. Well, there's an ex that's called static library. So the alternative is to um, dynamically add in the code only when you call it. It's called dynamic linking. So those of you who remember Windows has this thing called a DLL, a dynamic link library. And of course, that leads to something called DLL hell, which is... Um, the version that I linked with doesn't have quite the same syntax as the one that's on the operating system. So one of the ways around this is to get away from this linking to libraries altogether and to either um, interpret the code as you go. So you could do that on Android. You could have Java, which is an interpreted language as a native. Or you can... Um, do a quick bit of compilation before you run it, called just-in-time um, compilation. So JavaScript, that's the language that runs on web browsers, uh, is an example of that. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the operating system, what it does, a bit of virtual memory, all that sort of stuff. I skipped over a bit, which is scheduling. And scheduling is a rather interesting problem. You know, you've got a number of processes in your computer system how does the computer decide how much time to give to each one? Well, there's a multiplicity of algorithms. I've just picked one, which is a quite a simple one. I've picked one from an operating system called Solaris, which was developed by the Sun operating system, the Sun uh, microsystems, but is now owned by Oracle. And what Solaris does is it defines things, it processes as one of multiple classes. Most things are assigned to the time-sharing class. And each one of these things is given a priority level. And the lower the priority level, the more time it is allowed to run. So the scheduling algorithm goes like this. Firstly, we're going to slice the time. So I think Solaris, by default, has 20 millisecond uh, time slots. We're going to assign a thread a priority. There's a default assignation, but in most of Unix and most things, you, the user, can fiddle around with that if you want to. The high priority threads are going to be dealt with first. Once they have used up their exceeded time, then we decrease the priority. Okay, so it's a sort of greedy algorithm in the sense that your high priority, I'll deal with you, I'll deal with you, oh, you've run out of time, right. Thanks, I've had enough of you. You're lower priority now. Go to the back of the queue. Now I'll take you. So a lot of these algorithms out there, but that's quite a simple one. The reason I picked Solaris is because I just wanted to alert you to this interesting class of tasks here called real-time. Real-time is often misused in our field. It doesn't just mean speedy. It means um, I must have something done within a fixed time. So people often analyse, think of an operating system as the person spinning plates. I'm sure you've seen these people, big wobbly sticks and the plates are spinning, the plates are spinning. This plate over here is going to fall over unless I get some twist in the stick. That is a real-time problem. I don't have to do it now, but I have to do it within a fixed time. I have to do that. So that's a real-time problem. And there are whole operating systems devoted to the challenge of real-time. I feel I ought to say a little bit about inter-process communication, but not too much. Um, here's a problem. 
let's imagine I had this variable x, which I'm going to set to zero, and I've got two functions on the left here. This one reads x and adds one to it, and this one reads x and adds one to it. And this is my code, sequential code. So you, can, you know what's going to happen. I'm going to read x equals zero, uh, well, x is zero, then I'm going to read it in, that's why it's in blue. I'm going to add one to it, and then I set it to one, so x goes from zero to one. I'll read it again, and x ends up as two. No problem at all. Now then, let's say we put that through an optimizing compiler, and it thinks, ah, well, I can run these um, on separate processors. Right? That will make it f faster, won't it? Okay, so I start with x equals zero, I read it in, and I do my computation, and I just, oh, hang on, this one has started before this one has written it out. That's an example of a race condition. It can happen a lot in our business. You've got these multiple tasks all going on, and Either you can end up with very unexpected results like this. I mean, the sum is executed twice. It should be two. It's only one. And that's because something was read at the wrong time. Or worse, you can end up with task blocking. So the famous sort of undergraduate example is often given here is, the, um, is uh, one of the Mars missions. And uh, it didn't last for very long, this, but somebody very kindly wrote it up, so it gets mentioned a lot in undergraduate classes. Um, what happened here was the, the lunar vehicle had a high priority task that really needed to run. Um, and it was running, running, running. Um, and No, no, let's get this right way around. It's the other way around. A low priority task was run, and as that low priority task was uh, running along, uh, the low-priority task had some I.O. that it had to do or something that blocked it. So it said, well, uh, I'll just wait for this I.O. Then high-priority task comes on. I'm in charge. Higher-priority task comes in. High-priority task also needs the same I.O. It's blocked because the low-priority task has locked the I.O. Ah! So suddenly the computer thinks, oh, well, that's blocked. I can swap that out. So it swaps out the high-priority task and brings in a medium-priority task because the medium priority task is higher than the low priority task and the whole thing falls in a heap. It's called priority inversion. That's an example of deadlock or locking or race conditions. They're all examples of the same thing. And quite a lot of effort has to go through uh, operating system design to try and stop those things hurting us. A few words about the cloud, which is uh, all, all computer science talks given in industry always have a large, fluffy picture of the cloud. Um, I'd like a prize for not having put a picture of a fluffy cloud in my presentation. What's happening at the moment, however, is the transition from physical machines in front of you to physical machines elsewhere. And this can have quite a lot of advantages, particularly for corporations. Obviously, there's a huge capital advantage because you're not buying... Well, you can buy them, but very often you'll be renting them. So that can be more convenient financially. You can site the machines in places where you can get free electricity. Um, like Iceland is a famous uh, place to put a uh, server site. You can also ensure tremendous physical security with uh, remote, remote machines, which might not be available to you. I mean, we're giving this lecture in the city of London. 
Um, I have no idea how many servers are really based in the city of London, but not many, I should think. Why would you base them here with very expensive real estate and all sorts of issues? You base them somewhere where it's possible to give them physical security. There's a lot of interest in doing this. And the sort of buzzwords are you could offer something, a software as service, probably everyone has used that, that's something like Google Docs, that's a, something that runs in the, in the cloud or running on remote machines here, and that's everything provided by the pro provider. And this, of course, is the history where you, know, though you had operators in operating rooms and they had to do everything for you. Um, this is called infrastructure of um, a service, and that's where you have virtual servers in the cloud and just for completeness, I've got a platform as service. So that's an example of things like AWS, Amazon Web Services, or Azure. So those are um, services that you can use and integrate into your own applications. So for example, um, I hope I'm guessing right here, but I'm sure there is a, I'm sure there's an Azure face detector. So you don't need to write your own face detector. You can just subscribe to Microsoft Azure and use their face detection service in your own uh, software. Looks like you've got a library on your computer that does face detection. And of course, the advantage of that is you have this enormous library which you can access at your leisure. Right, IAS is an interesting one because when we look at the way IAS is deployed, instead of having this diagram over here, which is what your machine might look like in front of you, what you've got in the server centre is a block of hardware and multiple virtual machines running here. I'd just like a point for remembering to uh, colour the kernel boxes in mustard. Just a little Cluedo joke there. Um, but each one of these is a virtual machine and this thing here, the virtual machine manager, is an operating system of operating systems. It's a, sometimes called a hypervisor. And uh, it in itself might be an operating system specially configured to run processes that are themselves operating systems. The usual choice is Unix, again, or, or Linux to be precise, but there, there, are, there are others. Right, I want to end by looking at this market share graph, which looks ever so complicated. And down here are, in very small font, are gazillions of bizarre operating systems that no longer um, exist. But let's look at it. And I should point out, this is not all computers. This is just um, personal devices. Okay, so I'm ignoring uh, servers and so on. Servers are, are dominated by Linux, really, and, and various varieties of Unix. Let's look at today. Right? We've really got two things going on, haven't we? We've got this green lump here. That's Windows. And that's based... Windows as we know it today is nothing to do with DOS and old Windows. It's to do with an operating system called OS2, um, which was written some time ago. And over here, we've got varieties of Linux. And this, and Unix, this lump here is Android. Okay, so Linux has gone from this incredibly minor share of life to this incredibly huge share of uh, the operating system, and that's uh, Linux. This is MacOS, I think. MacOS um, 
is an interesting project. It's based on um, a microkernel, actually, called Mac, which was a version of Unix, especially rewritten. Actually, it's a hybrid. It has half of it's a microkernel, half of it's a, a monolithic kernel. Very interesting system. And then this is um, iOS, which is the, the operating system that runs on your mobile phone. There's a version that runs on your watch. It's all Unix. And down here, we've got Windows. So from this sort of many-coloured spectrum over here, we've gone to incredible homogeneity. I'm not sure I have a good explanation for the homogeneity. I suspect it's highly uh, commercial. But I think it's quite interesting that when you track back these things here, the winners are probably the creation of a tiny, tiny handful of uh, people of whom I have talked about just two, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of this lecture. It's also the end of a series for me, so thank you very much for having me. I should give a shout-out to my uh, successor, who is Professor Victoria Baines, who I think will give an excellent series of lectures and in so many ways will be so much better than me. Thank you. Professor Harvey, thank you very much. We have just a tiny bit of time for some questions. I've got a couple from the, in, uh, the online audience and then I'll ask the in-person audience if there are any questions from you. Um, can you explain what exactly is a kernel panic? Oh, kernel panic, yeah. Uh, so, um, so the answer is no, I can't exactly explain it. But it's a, it's a what? Um, there, are some, there are some things that you never want to see in your life, right? Um, you know, there are sort of... Um, um, I'm applying CPR is one of the... You know, you don't want to hear that. If somebody's saying that, you know it's trouble. And kernel panic is when something has badly has gone wrong in the kernel and it can't think what to do other than to print on your terminal kernel panic, and it's going to shut down in as best and orderly way as it can. And in the old days, that usually meant the end of your hard disk. And the reason it meant the end of your hard disk was because your kernel was controlling all that memory management that I was talking about. So you've got all these pages stacked up everywhere, and they kind of can't do it anymore, end. And your disk is now a scramble, and the stuff that was in your memory may or may not be on your disk. And so there was little you could do but turn off usually your Linux system because it was experimental. Cautiously, well, turn it off and on again was the only, but usually it wouldn't turn on again. So that was a good question. Um, and are Unix and Linux both written in C? Could they be rewritten in another language? Yes, they could. Um, so they, they are both written in C. Um, uh, there's been there's been a long running debate about how what, how you should write um, uh, kernels and uh, well actually we talked about Pear Brinch Hansen and he was an advocate I think of writing uh, as much of a kernel in a high level language as possible as indeed were uh, Ritchie and Thompson. Um, the truth of the matter is you usually have to write a little bit of your kernel in machine code to get efficiency. So. There is no reason in principle why you cannot write operating systems in a high-level language, and many people have, but in practice, usually uh, inline, as it's called, a little bit of it, just to get the speed. Operating systems are terribly... People get very cross if the operating system is slow doing things. I still get cross myself. It's something very disturbing about a very powerful computer sitting there going... 
you don't, it's, it's not loved by users. Uh, we are at the end of Professor Harvey's last series, and our provost was sadly unfortunate. Uh, he was not able to be here tonight, but he would like to say a few words. We're just going to put him on the screen to uh, talk to you, Professor Harvey. Oh, thanks. Well, ladies and gentlemen, sadly, this is Richard Harvey's final lecture as the, worship, uh, as the worshipful company of information technologists, Professor of Information Technology. And uh, because of this, I just wanted uh, Richard to say a few words of thanks. In addition to his work for Gresham, Richard is professor at the School of Computing Sciences at the University of East Anglia. And before joining UEA in 1993, Professor Harvey was a mathematician, first at Plessy Naval Systems and then Marconi Underwater Systems. And throughout his career, he has acted as a consultant for a number of international companies and as executive and non-executive directors. His research now focuses on artificial intelligence and computer vision. And recently, he's been working on the field of artificial lip reading, which fascinates him because of the scientific challenge and it allows him to debunk false claims and misunderstandings. Well, uh, Richard, your um, tenure as Gresham, Gresham Professor began in 2018, and your first series was called The Science of Information, and Professor Harvey explored some of the modern advances in computer technology from speech and text processing to machine learning and creative computers. In his second uh, series, which was uh, entitled The Digital State, he examined the technological developments in a variety of services provided to the public, such as digital healthcare, the digital economy, cashless society, digital education, and asked what could these mean for the future. His series in 2020 was called Great Ideas from Computer Science. And this included lectures on the history of computers and the internet and an introduction to algorithms and programming. The series looked at how these concepts have gone on to influence and indeed pervade our lives and our thinking. And Richard, your last series, which you've wound up so brilliantly this evening, was called Six Tech uh, inventions that change the world. And this gave us a wonderful rundown of some of the most significant inventions, such as cellular telephones, GPS, and various operating systems. Richard has shown us the computer science principles behind the everyday technologies that we've all become so dependent on. Through your time at Gresham uh, College, Richard, you've brought your considerable knowledge and expertise to a wider audience and we are extremely grateful to you for your um, work. You've um, helped us with our new website and other technical aspects of our provision and we really hope that in the future we can welcome you back uh, as a guest lecturer to the college. So thank you very much Professor Harvey for all you've done over the last four years as a Gresham professor.